0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have four new movies to review for you. Three of them are brand new in the sense that they came out for viewing for the first time on August 26th. 2022 the other one was first of all filmed in 2019 and secondly did not go to theaters nationwide until about a week ago around august 21st or rather august 19th excuse me 2022 and i will get to that movie last first though the first movie i'm going to be reviewing for you is the invitation Now, I do have to say that The Invitation is not an entirely original name, and to give you an idea of how unoriginal it is, there have been six feature films from all over the world so far that have either been called The Invitation or Invitation. The most recent one is one that's available on Netflix right now. It's a thriller more than it is a horror film, but it's a psychological thriller. And that movie came out in 2015. That's a movie I have seen, but it is not the one that's in theaters right now. It's not the brand new film called The Invitation. So if you see a movie on Netflix that's called The Invitation, that's not the one I'm talking about. This one, The Invitation, is one that came out in 2022. It's written or co-written and directed by Jessica M. Thompson, who is an Australian director, and this is her second feature film so far. It was also co-written by Blair Butler, and this is an entirely original film. But its inspiration is one I'm not going to reveal, but it's pretty obvious what the inspiration for the movie is. Once you actually see it for yourself, but I'm not going to tell you what that inspiration is because there's a certain twist in the middle of the movie that honestly I didn't see coming. And I was very surprised by this twist, but to tell you what the inspiration behind this movie is, is going to ruin that twist for you. So the invitation is a film about an American woman by the name of Evie. Who's played by Natalie Emmanuel and Natalie Emmanuel is a British actress who has been on Game of Thrones, as well as some other movies and TV shows. And she is a stunningly beautiful actress. She is like if you took the DNA of Jessica Alba, Guga Mbatha-Raw and Kerry Washington and spliced it together. And that is a a huge compliment because that is quite some DNA in addition to other features. But remembering that I have a girlfriend, I just move on. So Evie is an aspiring artist who lives in New York city and she's struggling to get by, especially since both her parents have died. She is biracial and normally this isn't worth bringing up, but it is worth bringing up because she was a um, daughter to a black father and a white mother. And not really knowing any family, e- even though she's not technically an orphan because she's a working adult. She still doesn't know her extended family. So out of curiosity, she takes a DNA test and she discovers that she's related to a white man who lives in England by the name of Oliver, who's played by Hugh Skinner. And Oliver is very charismatic and also seems like a very nice guy. And he comes to New York City and tells Evie that She has an extended family of which she wasn't aware who lives on the English countryside and he encourages her to come visit them in England and offers to pay for the flight and the trip there. And how could you refuse that? And when Evie arrives in this English countryside, she visits a manor that's run by a man to whom she's not related by the name of Walter, who's played by Thomas Doherty. And Thomas Doherty is a native Scotsman who is so charming, admittedly, that I was jealous of him, especially since a romance begins to bud between Evie and Walter and Thomas Doherty has been in a number of projects. He's probably best known to American audiences for being in the descendants films from the Disney company in those films. He plays Harry hook who is the son of captain hook, but honestly, Thomas Doherty, since Daniel Cray's going to be giving up this role could easily be the next James Bond and he'd be really good in that role. And as jealous as I was of his good looks and his charm, I really bought the chemistry between him and Natalie Emanuel, hook, line, and sinker. But Natalie Emanuel feels out of place not only because she's American, but also because she's part black. But in addition to that, she also doesn't really fit in with this family. And she finds that there are some relatives of hers that are very... Charming and charismatic, like, for instance, one of the bridesmaids of this wedding to which she's attending, whose name is Lucy, and she's played by Alana Bowden. And she gets along with Lucy a lot more than her other stuck-up relative, Victoria, who's another bridesmaid who's played by Stephanie Corneliusen, who's not only stuck up, but there's also something very sinister about her, or sinister-seeming, I should say. And initially, you know there's something terribly wrong at this castle. You know there's some kind of paranormal entity that's haunting the castle grounds. At first, they start killing the help, but eventually they start coming after Evie as well. And that's all I'm going to tell you about the plot of this movie because there is a twist Maybe not in the very middle of the film, but probably about 60% of the way through the film that had me shocked and words on film has a self-imposed rule about such movies where there are no spoilers, but I'll just tell you instead of spoiling the film for you, what I loved about the film. Not only did I love the twist. But I loved the acting job from Natalie Emanuel. I think this is probably her breakout role, especially amongst people like me who haven't seen an episode of Game of Thrones in their life. I thought the chemistry between her and Thomas Doherty was great. I also really liked some of the supporting players, including Evie's best friend Grace from New York City, who's played by Courtney Taylor, who some people might know from the Issa Rae show... Insecure on HBO, another HBO show of which I've heard many great things, but I haven't actually seen it myself. And initially I don't watch movie previews, but when I saw that there was a movie out that was called the invitation and I saw the poster of it. And it's obvious that it's a horror film. I, as a film critic, who's seen many horror films, 95% of which don't really scare me. I was kind of like, okay, here's another horror film. I'll just see it. Maybe it'll scare him, maybe it won't. There are some legitimately scary parts in this film, and even before the twist. In fact, once this paranormal entity starts haunting Evie in her bedroom in this Victorian mansion, there were some genuine jump scares that had me putting my eyes, excuse me, putting my hands over my eyes. And the invitation was really a great surprise. It doesn't really have an original name. Maybe I've seen this kind of film before, but just about everything about the film really impressed me. And not only does the invitation get a knockout, but I was especially impressed that this film was made for only $10 million because the set design of the Gothic castle itself would have, I thought, been worth $50 $50 million U.S. dollars. And if it didn't cost that much to put the set design in, it certainly looked like a lot more than a million dollars. And that is saying, while one of several great things about The Invitation, it was a very pleasant surprise. It was a movie that had me legitimately scared. And the twist in the 60% part of this film definitely had me both, shocked and also very impressed. So the invitation is an, a very unlikely win, but a win nonetheless. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is 3,000 Years of Longing. This is a movie that is directed by legendary Australian director George Miller, who has literally directed every single official Mad Max movie that's come out, from the 1979 film starring Mel Gibson to the Mad Max Fury Road film starring... Tom Hardy, Charlize Theron, and several other people. This is a guy who has who's directed some good films and some bad films, but they've been mostly good, and this is a film that I did not expect him to direct, but I really liked it. It's a drama that's also a fantasy and a romance. It is about a lonely scholar and mythologist whose name is Alethea, a great uh, name, if i If I do comment myself. And she's played by weird actress Tilda Swinton. The reason I say she's a weird actress is not because necessarily she's a weird person, but she probably goes. She's probably most attracted to playing weird people in weird movies, and that has not hurt her career at all. She's worked with a lot of the greats. Besides George Miller, she's been in several films with. Um, that have been directed by the Coen brothers and Wes Anderson, amongst other people. But she's actually not the weirdest person in this movie, believe it or not. But she is a mythologist who takes a trip to Istanbul and discovers, when she goes to an antique shop, a jinn who lives in the bottle that she's purchased at this antique shop. Don't know what a djinn is? Let me inform you. A djinn is kind of like a genie and this djinn who's played by Idris Elba offers Alethea three wishes, but Alethea is not so much interested in getting these three wishes as much as she is learning about what life experiences the Jin has had, because she's more interested in stories than about possessing really anything. So this movie is not quite going down the road of be careful what you wish for. It's more about the love of stories, which I can really get behind. So the writers of this film are George Miller, who also directed the film, as I said, and Augusta Gore, and is based upon a short story called The Djinn in the Nightingale's Eye, which was written by A.S. Byatt. And I liked the fact that the movie was less about somebody getting wishes and maybe having or suffering the consequences based on those wishes and more about... Something that other films about jinns or genies are not involved with. And Idris Elba plays a great jinn. And I was reviewing the movie Beast that he did that came out last week. And one of my grievances with. The beast was the fact that it was a thrilling movie and one that was worth seeing on the big screen, but it wasn't a particularly intelligent film. And I expected better from Idris Elba. And I'm not saying that Idris Elba is, is not intelligent in the film or he doesn't play an intelligent character. He does in the movie, the beast, he plays a doctor, but the film itself was kind of just a paint by numbers thriller about man versus beast. And I think that this movie 3000 Years of Longing is not just original, it's also very smart. And I liked seeing the flashbacks of the Jin's life and him describing to Tilda Swinton's character about all the people who whom he has served and the wishes that they have made that have had consequences on their life thereafter. And also in taking in in this being a film about a genie, there are caveats and quid pro quos about what wishes the Jinn can't grant. For example, he can't give you more wishes based on one wish. And he also can't grant you immortality, which I think is probably a good exposition to showing the limits that this, this genie certainly has. And it's kind of a given with any movie with a genie, especially any incantation of Aladdin. But... The movie also gets into an unexpected romance between this lonely scholar and the jinn, which I didn't think would work because if Tilda Swinton really can't do one thing, or at least I, can't, I assume she can't do one thing, it's romance. But I guess I underestimated Tilda Swinton's um, range as an actress because I think she's certainly pigeonholed into movies where she plays somebody who's weird, but not somebody who is a romantic lead, so to speak, or at least she hasn't played that in probably about easily 25 to 30 years in her entire repertoire. But the chemistry between her and Idris Elba is surprisingly good. And I think that's a testament to both Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba as actors. They not only chose a very fantastic movie in terms of its special effects, but they also chose a very smart movie. And that's why I give 3000 years of longing my rating of a knockout. It's not just a hoity toity art film. It also has some appeal to people who attend movies exclusively at multiplexes or want some eye candy at home on, on their streaming service. And it's going to be a little while before 3000 years of longing, hits uh, streaming, but I think that people who see it in the theaters or who see it at home won't be disappointed either, whether they're art house movie lovers who love to see Tilda Swinton in her weird sort of subversive movie roles, or if they want to see a budding star like Idris Elba on Movies that are a bit more eye candy. I think that 3000 years of longing may not have gone out to please everyone, but I think it actually does on various different levels and I commend it for that. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Me Time. This is the latest comedy that premiered on Netflix on August 26th, 2022 and stars Kevin Hart. And stop me if you've heard the premise for this film. It's about a dad who finds time for himself for the first time in years while his wife and kids are away, but he reconnects with a friend for a wild weekend. And it may not exactly sound like the films that Kevin Hart usually does, but this is kind of his bread and butter and like bread and butter. It's kind of bland. It's good every once in a while, but if you have it every day, it usually gets very bland and very old. And me time is no exception to that rule. And I think that Kevin Hart is kind of being pigeonholed into this role where he plays the reluctant action hero next to somebody who's a lot more rugged and a lot more experienced in the action hero role. It is not quite the same film as the man from Toronto, which came out a couple of months ago and was also a very paint by numbers. Kevin Hart starring or co-starring action film, but it's essentially the same thing. So substituting for Woody Harrelson here is Mark Wahlberg and Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg play best friends from childhood, but that's about all you kind of learn about their background in terms of being old friends. I would have loved to seen a lot more about how Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg started out as friends, but you kind of learn that Mark Wahlberg is a guy who used to be in advertising and with no real visible means of income, he throws these very lavish parties with all these exotic friends and Kevin Hart comes along and learns that Mark Wahlberg's character, who has one of the weirdest names I've ever heard, Huck Dembo. Do you know anybody named Huck? I don't. I mean, Huckleberry, I guess, but that's a very weird name and probably not a name that anybody from Boston, like Mark Wahlberg is, would ever be named. But again, it's it's a jarringly ridiculous name. But lo and behold, Mark Wahlberg's name is Huck Dembo, and he seems to be living the life until it's revealed that he borrowed $47,000 from a loan shark. And the Lone Shark in this movie is not particularly intimidating. You would think that a Lone Shark would be somebody like maybe Robert De Niro or John Cena or somebody who plays a tough guy. But as it turns out, the uh, the Lone Shark in this movie is played by just a meek Asian-American actor and... His scenes are not particularly intimidating, so the tension that could be behind this film is more or less off. And by the way, that, that loan Shark, his name is Stan Berman, again, not a very interesting name, and he's played by Jimmy O'Yang, who has just been actually had a very funny supporting role in the movie Easter Sunday, but here he plays a loan shark who kind of comes up and just meekly says to Mark Wahlberg that he owes him $47,000. And if he doesn't have the money, he's going to break his fingers. But again, the, the scene that happens is just not funny and also not particularly thrilling. I did actually have a laugh from the very first part of this movie where it shows Mark Wahlberg and Kevin Hart hand gliding. And as you might expect, um, Kevin Hart is very afraid to hand glide or do this kind of elaborate parachuting that Mark Wahlberg is very willing to do, but the, the way that Kevin Hart actually gets off the cliff and starts parachuting, uh, reluctantly, that actually was played very well. And when I saw this scene, I initially thought, okay, that scene is funny. The rest of the movie should be really good, but it isn't. Kevin Hart, again, plays a guy who lives a very humdrum suburban life. And he also is married to a woman who's played by Regina Hall, who is an architect and makes a lot more money than he does. And so she's the breadwinner. He's kind of the stay at home dad, which is kind of not exactly, but very close to the kind of character he played in. The Man from Toronto, as well as Central Intelligence, which is the movie he did with Dwayne Johnson back in 2016, which was a much better film. But Me Time is a film that felt like a waste of my time because it was a very paint-by-numbers buddy comedy where Kevin Hart feels like there's something missing in his life, and then he reluctantly goes on another trip with a guy who is living life to the fullest or so it seems, and then they get in trouble, but every gag in this film felt worn out and it felt predictable. And Kevin Hart's reactions felt very um not funny. And it, it felt very forced and it's basically the same kind of film he's done along with the the ones that I've mentioned, like Ride Along or central intelligence where he's paired up with somebody who is the exact opposite of of him in terms of action as well, in terms of personality, as well as willingness for action. So me time was a very uninspired film. And it's really unfortunate because this is directed by John Hamburg and also written by John Hamburg. And John Hamburg was the only one who's given writing credit here. And John Hamburg has produced and directed other better films before this, like along came Polly and I love you, man. But he also, unfortunately also directed why him, which starred Brian Cranston and James Franco, and was also a very predictable comedy. I loved I Love You, Man. That was probably my favorite film by John Hamburg so far. But Me Time is so formulaic, and I would have expected better. It's obvious that John Hamburg was not the only one writing this, and it seemed like a very standard buddy comedy that Kevin Hart has undoubtedly done before, which is why Me Time gets my rating of a flunk out. Kevin Hart is... is I thought was trying to do different films. And last year he did actually a film that was a comedy drama that was called fatherhood, which I thought was very good. And Kevin Hart was very good in it. But unfortunately it seems like he is getting into this random or rather this formulaic trap that Liam Neeson is also trapped in for different reasons. And honestly, even though Kevin Hart is not short on cash, he should start picking films or, ha- or have an agent that will pick films for him that are away from this typecasting trap. And I know that Kevin Hart can do it. I still like Kevin Hart, but unfortunately the last, the last two films that I've seen by him excluding DC league of super pets, namely me time and the man from Toronto shows that he really needs to get probably a new agent that will pick better films for him that are more capable or more reflective of his smarts and his talent as a comedic actor. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Love in Kilnary. Where is Kilnary? Well, I didn't exactly know when I first went in to see this film. When I saw this advertised at my local multiplex, oddly enough, not at Belcourt, I assumed that Kilnary is a town in Ireland because it definitely has an Irish name. Unfortunately, it is not a film that takes place in Ireland. It takes place in a fictional town of Kilnary, which is in New Hampshire. The movie, Love and Kilnary, is written by, directed by, produced by, and starring Daniel Keith, who amazingly enough is from Texas, not New Hampshire. So I don't exactly know what Daniel Keith's inspiration for a, this film, or B, the fact that it takes place in New Hampshire is, but any film that takes place in New England, not necessarily one that's filmed in New England, but anyone that takes place in New England, I have a certain soft spot in my heart for because I was born and raised in New England, and I lived there um, throughout most of my life, with the exception of when I moved here to Nashville, Tennessee, when I was a mere 36 years of age. But... The movie Love and Kilnary is about the elderly residents of a small, remote town that's bordering the Atlantic Ocean and is near the city of Portsmouth, a beautiful city, by the way. I've been there several times. But they panic after a representative from the Environmental Protection Agency announces that the government mandated changes to their water supply needed for their chemical plant, and they, for Sound environmental reasons, which is the good news, could create a byproduct that would dramatically increase the town's sexual libido, which makes me kind of want to move to this town if that's the byproduct of it. But apparently the star of this film, Daniel Keith, who plays the local town sheriff, whose name is Gary O'Reilly, is the only one upset about this news. And he's the hero of the film, believe it or not. So... There are love stories that happen in this town. As you might expect, there is the mayor of the town whose name is Jerry Boylan, which is a very new England name. If I, uh, do comment myself, he's played by an actor named Tony Triano. And he's a good actor, Tony Triano is. It's kind of neat and a little funny that he's not only the mayor of the town, but he's also the local bartender. I found that funny. What I didn't find funny and I found kind of strange was the fact that the mayor, Jerry Boylan, has a feud with the local parish priest. Who hates the local parish priest? I don't get it. But this parish priest is named Father Wesley O'Dell, I guess he's Catholic because he's known as father, not pastor, and he's played by James Patrick Nelson. Now, what's weird about this is that James Patrick Nelson is a man who's no older than 45, whereas Tony Triano is a man in his mid-60s. Why would a man in his mid-60s have a feud with a guy who's 20 to 30 years younger than him? That's one of the kind of running gags of this film, but... This mayor is legally separated from his wife and he begins a liaison with a local woman by the name of Bridget, who's played by Sheila Staysack, who, Staysack, excuse me, who is just a local town woman. And she's, I think, fair, as you might expect for a woman in her maybe early to mid-60s, I'm presuming. But they have a liaison going on and it's not... Uh, right after the news about this chemical compound that could create increased libido effects. And that was probably the least surprising part of this film. But the chemistry between Sheila Stasack and Tony Triano was probably the best thing about this film. Everything else about the film didn't work. There are other people who are having flings, because of this sort of placebo effect of them thinking that something is brainwashing them to have um, romantic relations with people in their town. And a lot of the people who have these romantic relations are older people, you know, no younger than 40, so to speak. But apparently the town sheriff has a problem with this because he thinks that they're just going to be orgies all over the town. And these are not my words. These are his words. And my, my, answer to that is why stop that? What's wrong with more love in this world? You know, orgies and the streets. Yeah, that's a little bit of a stretch. I think people are a little bit more, shall we say, cognizant or self-aware than to do that. But apparently the film kind of went there. There's one scene where Sheriff Gary O'Reilly walks in on an orgy that's happening, which I didn't think really needed to be there. And the slapstick was very forced. And there's also another neighbor in their town who take part in bondage in their own, uh, basements. And you know what, what they do on their own time, that's fine. What they do behind a closed locked door. That's between, you know, a consenting man and a woman that are of age. That's okay. But I don't know. (sighs) For some reason, Daniel Keith wrote his own character to be the stingy town person. And there's also a very forced relationship between uh, a local paper store owner named Nessa, who's played by Kathy Searle and him, where you're supposed to be rooting for the two of them to get together. But truth be told, Kathy Searle kind of plays this woman as if she's on cocaine she is not only rambling when she's trying to express her love for Sheriff O'Reilly, who is single, by the way, I, I got to add that. So there's nothing inappropriate about them having a relationship, but the things she says, which are supposed to be funny, are wildly inappropriate. And it seems like Kathleen Searle is trying to do, I guess, sort of an invita- uh, an imitation of one of Kristen Wiig's characters on Saturday Night Live, like... Uh, Judy Grimes, who talks a mile a minute and punctuates her sentences with "just kidding," and for those of you who are not familiar with SNL, or at least SNL from about 15 years ago, I that that's all the ex- explanation I'm going to get. And there's also another weird running gag where the the local parish priest, Father Wesley Odell, does not. Um, form any romantic relations with any person in the town, but he develops a fondness for being a nudist in a really weak running gag. And there's one scene where he's riding a bicycle completely naked and the sheriff pulls him over for, you know, indecent exposure, which you are supposed to do as a law enforcement official. But the movie is framed so that it looks like, Sheriff O'Reilly is the town grump who you're also supposed to be rooting for. So I really don't want to rip on this film because it is an independently produced movie. And the fact that it made it in theaters nationwide is very impressive, but it is a very weak and unpolished romantic comedy. And I have nothing against romantic comedies. As long as it's a good film. I'm on board with it, but this is a film that really needed some more editing. And I'm talking editing on the script level and also needing some work because why would the star writer, producer, and director of this film make himself out to be the bad guy and and not just the bad guy, I, I guess you could make yourself that, but He's the hero of the film who is not very likable, first of all, and you're supposed to be rooting for him. And secondly, he comes off less like a realistic town sheriff and more like the mayor of Pleasantville who is upset about all these people falling in love and turning color. And it just doesn't really work in this film. In addition to that, I wasn't on board with the relationship between him and Kathy Searles character at all. Not only do they have no chemistry, but these people in this film just made really inappropriate, uh, jokes that just aren't funny and don't really fit in the context of this film at all. So I'm not going to give love and Kilnary a flunk out because I know this film is trying and I know that the people in it are trying as well, but it's a strikeout because It really needed a ton of work. And I could tell the scenes that were supposed to be funny, but weren't. I will say, however, that the performances of Tony Triano and Sheila Stasak are probably the best things about this movie. In fact, they were so good. I wanted the whole film to be about them, you know, and be, and have this side story about this chemical compound that makes people fall in love, sort of a side note, because If there's a chemical compound that makes people fall in love, who cares? Love is a great thing. As long as it doesn't give people cancer or kill wildlife, like real chemical compounds do in real life, not all, but obviously some what's wrong with that. And what's, what's more is what is the star writer, producer, and director's problem with that? I'm really asking. (laughs) Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment of the show, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for this coming weekend. The weekend being uh, September 2nd through September 5th. 2022, which is Labor Day weekend, the unofficial end of summer. And there are quite a few films that are coming out in theaters alone for this weekend. First, on September 1st, 2022, which is a Thursday, there's a documentary coming out called Dio Dreamers Never Die. This is a documentary about the life and career of Ronnie James Dio, who is who or who was a heavy metal legend. And he had been the lead singer of such groups as black Sabbath after Ozzy Osbourne and also rainbow and Dio and other legendary heavy metal groups of the seventies and eighties. But he remained active until his death in 2010 and this film Dio dreamers never die, uh, spans the career of the heavy metal vocalist. And apparently it is the first documentary about Ronnie James Dio or, or excuse me, it is the first documentary to be authorized by the artist estate and includes scenes with peers, family and friends never before seen footage and personal photos. So obviously Ronnie James Dio has been dead for 12 years, but this movie actually features a lot of very impressive interviewing subjects, including such legends of metal of the seventies and eighties, including Sebastian Bach, Lita Ford, Rob Halford, Tony, Tommy, excuse me, Tony Ayami and others. And I don't know if this is a film that's going to be playing in a theater near me. If it is, I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show, because I was a former metalhead. I, (laughs) I'm not so much now. I haven't really listened to heavy metal for quite some time, but I have all the respect in the world for Ronnie James Dio. Not only was he an amazing artist and a profound vocalist, but he was also by all accounts, a very down to earth guy. So I'll look out for Dio dreamers never die, whether it's in theaters and on streaming. And I'll let you know what I think next week. If I see it. Another movie that is actually subject to being released in theaters on September 2nd, Friday is a movie with a very interesting title. And this movie, this movie's title alone made me laugh just by reading it. The movie is called, and I'm not making this up honk for Jesus, save your soul. Yeah. Let me read that title of the movie again, honk for Jesus, save your soul. That is hilarious. The movie stars Regina Hall and Sterling, Sterling K. Brown, and Sterling K. Brown is a, is an actor who's been um, one of the principal actors in the show This Is Us, but he's been in other movies too, uh, big movies in particular, like Black Panther, Hotel Artemis, The Predator, and that's just from 2018. So he's, he's certainly busy, very much like Idris Elba. So in the aftermath of a huge scandal, Trinity Childs, who's played by Regina Hall, who is the first lady of a prominent Southern Baptist megachurch, attempts to help her pastor husband, Lee Curtis Childs, Sterling K. Brown, rebuild their congregation. I don't know what the scandal of this church is. Hopefully it's not infidelity because there are way too many African-American comedies where the man is cheating on the woman. That happens in just about every Tyler Perry comedy, and he's certainly not the first, nor he will he be, be the last black filmmaker to get that um, subplot into his movies. But Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul looks like the biggest movie of uh, Labor Day weekend. I will see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on September 7th is a movie that's called Burial. And this is a movie about a small group of Russian soldiers who have the task of taking Hitler's discovered remains back to Stalin in Moscow. That sounds chilling. So this movie, I don't know if it's based on a true story. It's directed by and written by Ben Parker. And the stars of the movie include Tom Felton, Harriet Walter, Charlotte Vega, and Barry Ward. These are all American or British actors. Tom Felton is not a household name, but he's best known for having played Draco Malfoy in the Harry Potter movies, all of them. And he also had a really good um, and, and... also bad supporting role, he was good in the film, but he played a very bad character in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And that is the newer Planet of the Apes trilogy that I 100% loved. And I haven't heard anything about a fourth movie, but I'm getting a little off topic here. But Burial is a film that sounds really interesting. And if it's coming out in theater near me, I will see it and I will review it for you on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on September 2nd is Waiting for Bojangles. Very interesting name. And it's about um, a couple by the name of Camille and George who, in front of their little boy, dance to their favorite song, Mr. Bojangles. With them, there is only place for fun and fantasy. So I'm a little disappointed because I expected this movie to be... A film about Bill Bojangles Robinson, upon whom the song, Mr. Bojangles, is based. And Mr. Bojangles is a classic song that came out in the 60s. It was originally written by a country music artist by the name of Jerry Jeff Walker in 1968 The best known covers of the song have been by the nitty gritty dirt band who came out with their song in 1970 and also Sammy Davis jr. Covered that song as well in the early seventies as well. And it's became one of Sammy Davis jr.'s signature songs. And I'd love to see a film about Bill Bojangles Robinson, but this is not it, but waiting for Bojangles. Still sounds like an interesting film. I was a bit disappointed based on what I expected about it, but I may see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I do see it. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on September 2nd is a movie that's called Blind Ambition, and this movie actually came out or was made, according to IMDb, in 2021. It's a film that sounds like it was made in Zimbabwe because it's about four Zimbabwean men who form their country's first wine-tasting Olympics team. So they become sommeliers. That's a word I learned from another Netflix film. Yeah, I didn't learn it from reading a book. I'm sorry. But the movie um, does not actually have a roster of actors who I can um, tell you about because actually I just read this. Blind Ambition is a documentary, so this could be coming out on streaming. So this is a true story, 100%, but I'm going to look out for it, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The last movie that is subject to being released in theaters on September 2nd is a movie that's called The Horror Crowd, which, according to IMDb, came out in or was made in 2020. This is a documentary, and this time I uh, it's... It's for sure, but it's a revealing intimate documentary that spots lights the Hollywood horror community. Interesting. I can't exactly see who is being interviewed in this documentary, or I can't really give context to the people who are being interviewed. But if I see this, not only will I review it and let you know what I think on next week's show, but I'll also give you some context about the interviewees in this film, because The Hollywood horror community is kind of a vague term. Is it about the people who make movies or is it about the people who see movies? Well, I can't exactly tell you, but one thing I will tell you is that I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've given you a spoken word preview of all the movies that are subject to being released in theaters on the weekend of September 2nd through September 5th, 2022, let me get into some Netflix originals. There are a lot of films that are coming to Netflix on September 1st. Amongst them are some originals, and I have to kind of sift through some of the other films that have already come out or are not Netflix originals as well as the series, but there is one Brazilian comedy that's called Fenced In, and I don't normally talk about movies that are foreign because, not because I'm xenophobic or anything, but because I only have time to watch so many films and I do put the American films first because if I didn't, I wouldn't really have some clear focus on this movie. But this is a movie about a man named Walter who moves from the city out to the countryside after he experiences a nervous breakdown, but his dream of a peaceful life is ruined when he meets his loud neighbors. This sounds particularly like the plot of a silent film. And I can't exactly tell you the roster of talent because I don't really know a lot of these actors, which is one of the downsides to reviewing some foreign films. But again, I'm not against reviewing foreign movies. I just kind of put them lower on my priority list unless maybe they get widespread critical acclaim, but If I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. There's another film that's a British film that's called Love in the Via. This is a Netflix original film that is undoubtedly a romantic comedy. In terms of its quality, it looks like kind of a Hallmark movie. But it's a movie that stars Tom Hopper, who is most famous for being in the show the umbrella Academy, which I haven't seen. And also Kat Graham, who is a beautiful actress, but remembering that I have a girlfriend, I'm just going to tell you about the plot of this movie, a young woman who happens to be gorgeous without, <laughs> without me thinking about infidelity takes a trip to romantic Verona, Italy, the home of Romeo and Juliet after a breakup only to find that the via she reserved was bu- double booked and she has to share her vacation with a cynical British man. So let me guess the plot of this movie. They are not going to get together because they annoy themselves so much or they annoy each other so much. No, that is definitely not the plot of the film. <laughs> you know they're going to get together in the end. So Love and the Via is definitely one of those films that's Hallmark-like and it's kind of comfort food to those people particularly women who want to pour themselves a glass of wine, maybe crack open a pint of Ben and Jerry's and just relax for the evening. I can't imagine that I'm going to see this film and I'm going to like it, but I might see it. And if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released on Netflix on, let's say, September 2nd is a movie that's called the Ivy and Bean Trilogy. This is a live action kids movie based on the books by Ann Barrows, including Ivy and Bean, Ivy and Bean, The Ghost That Had to Go, and Ivy and Bean, Doomed to Dance. So I'm not familiar with Ivy and Bean. I'm not familiar with those books because I'm an adult who doesn't really go to the kids section. But if the book is good enough, I might read it. But this movie, in terms of well-known actors that adults might know, includes Jane Lynch, Nia Vardalos, Jesse Tyler Ferguson from, from Modern Family, and that's really about it in terms of well-known actors. So, maybe this film might be one worth watching, but I can't exactly say for sure, but it seems cute and it seems like one that kids would like. So... I'll, I might see it. If I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. And the last film that is subject to being released on Netflix on, as a Netflix original film on Friday, September 2nd, is a, is a film that's called The Festival of Troubadours. And this is a film that is a Netflix original as well as a film that is Turkish. And I'm going to tell you the plot of the film in just a moment. The plot of the film is about a father by the name of Haves Ali, who's played by Kivank Tatlatuk. And he is journeying to meet his son Yusuf in a film that takes place over the course of 25 years. So this seems like one of these films that is undoubtedly... Oscar quality or one that seems like Oscar bait. If I have time to see this film, I will, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.